0: Economics works so well because we all have perfect information about everything, all the time. We choose products at the best price because we know all about all products and their prices, so we can make the best choice. Of course that's how it works. That's why we can all pursue our own self-interest to provide the most efficient outcome for any situation. And that's what makes the economy work, right? But what about Stiglitz's take on all of this? His views on asymmetric information, which he has tried to apply... To the global financial crisis does that mean it would never have happened if we had perfect information and knowing we don't how many other assumptions of economics falls by the wayside that's today on the debunking economics podcast with professor steve keen i'm phil dobby welcome along Well, one of the the flaws of economics has been the assumption that we all have perfect information that nothing is hidden. So we will uh, there will be price competition, and we will pay the lowest price because we know what the lowest price is. Strangely, we know the price of a particular good uh, everywhere in the, in the country or everywhere within driving distance. Now, that very simple assumption would mean presumably. It's impossible for a company to make extraordinary profits. We're all going to be beaten down to, uh, to the lowest possible level. But, Steve, I wonder if actually um, we are getting closer to that situation of perfect information. You'll never have perfect information, but it's getting more perfect thanks to the Internet. We do know a lot more now than we ever did before.
1: Well, the, the whole notion is nonsense. I mean, I've got to go back to my my days as a as a school as a university student, and I, I must remember when I first got told the assumption of perfect information. Um, you know that my my sceptical bones started to, to started to you know creak even at the age of seventeen. On that particular... You'd be thinking,
0: one. at that stage, I mean, everyone must look at that and think, okay, well, this is how economics work. And there's just one tiny assumption that everyone knows everything.
1: Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was one of the things I thought, hang on a second, this is a bit weird. Uh, and this, this is the whole idea that gives them what they call horizontal demand curves. So they argue that uh, a perfectly competitive firm as a price taker. That's the argument they make, because if they drop their price... Uh, below what the market price is, then they'll get infinite demand. And if they raise it above the market price, they'll get zero demand. So therefore you've got this straight line that says that that's the price a competitive firm prices at. And uh, I, I still remember my, my sort of innate scepticism about that. And then some years later, I, I realised that, well, that is actually mathematically, not just logically, but mathematically incompatible with the idea of a downward sloping uh, market demand curve. Because if you have... Um, A market's banker, which slopes down, and you zoom in on any particular small section of it, then it has to slope down as well. And instead, this says, if you zoom in on a small bit of a downward sloping line, you'll find that it's horizontal. Uh, No, you won't. You'll find you're talking to an economist. Um uh, and, and mm-hmm. then so that but anyway the, the 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 way that the idea of asymmetric information came about was to say, well let's relax this crazy assumption and say we have information asymmetry and that explains everything that goes wrong with capitalism. So everybody knew everything. Uh, then they, they would work as the as the textbook describe it. But because people don't know everything, then there's asymmetric information, and that leads to the possibility of individual gains at the expense of others, and so on.
0: But it, but it also means that you you, you know my, in the introduction talking about it would be very mm-hmm. difficult for a company to say, well we're going to make extraordinary profits. Everybody presumably would be on the the minimal profit you could make to survive. You know, because the net margins would be squeezed by the fact that everybody knows so much, so they'll go to the cheapest. So we'll have we'll have price competition. Yet, if you look at S and P 500 companies, their net margins have gone from around eight percent in the 50s to the to the turn of the century, mm. uh, and uh, and you know, and then they've sharply increased to the point where just before the pandemic, they were up to 15 percent. And if you look at EBIT margins, they're up to 21 percent. Mm-hmm. So we are, and obviously the well, that's because we're moving from manufacturing to services uh, orientation more in those top companies. But company, it doesn't matter. same thing applies, doesn't it? You, whether it's a good or a service, if you've got perfect information, you wouldn't be able to sell for for more because everyone would know what your competitors were
1: doing and they'd squeeze you down to the minimum. It, this this is one of the points where you can have what sounds like an intelligent conversation about nonsense. Um, okay i'm very good at that that's my specialty economists are better than you are that's their specialty uh but it's framing the whole debate in a way that simply doesn't make any sense at all Uh, because uh, what is what this all implies and it's all based on the concept that firms face rising costs as they increase their output level and this is what's called their their marginal cost so the cost which is supposed to determine the amount they supply is the is the marginal cost. How much does it cost to produce the very last item you sell? And that is what determines uh, the, the, the supply price that people are able to charge. And when you look in the empirical, in the real world, you find that uh, the, the rather than the, the cost of the last item being sold rising, the cost of the last item being sold falls. And the whole idea that you can actually price at marginal cost—it it is empirically impossible. And uh, the, the best example uh, uh, is, is is computer software itself, because what's the marginal cost of, an, of another copy, downloaded copy of Windows Eleven? Uh, nothing, nothing at all. Yeah. So it'll be a few cents because there's a bit of electricity involved in the in the storage. Uh, it Maybe it may more than a few cents, but it'd be a hell of a lot less than 130 bucks, which is what you end up paying for it. And uh, in, in effect, if you said, "Well, I'm only going to pay you the you know the marginal cost, which is the matter of cents," Microsoft would instantly be the world's most bankrupt company. Um, mm. Now, in fact, that doesn't happen. My, the, these enormous margins that they charge. Uh, could persist through time and the whole idea that you can say oh well now because uh, windows is charging 130 bucks and i can get uh, linux for and i'm going to jump across and buy linux instead no you don't you get yeah. linux for free and people still don't use it um so the, the the very idea that there's this uniform product called an operating system that there's thousands of companies producing and you can choose whichever one you want and you get exactly the same thing is garbage that is not also, the
0: world we live in. No, and and also you I mean you raise another interesting point there as well, which is you know if you if you've got perfect information, what, what is that information? So if you yeah, knew yeah. that the, if you knew the marginal cost for Windows uh, 11 or Windows 12 or whatever we are up to now uh, was was just a few cents, then you wouldn't be very happy about paying the, the, the full price for it. But, uh, as you say, you've got no choice, actually, have you? You've got so, no but, choice. But, but, what, it's, it's, yeah. but what are you going to do with that information anyway? So there was a, well, while I was doing a bit of research for, for this discussion, I came across Solomon Ash, who's an American psychologist in the 1940s, mm. who basically asked, who would you give a job to? A guy who is intelligent, industrious, impulsive, creative, stubborn, and envious. You know, all, all of those are pretty good things. Mm. Or would you give it to a guy who's envious, stubborn, critical, Impulsive, but also industrious and intelligent. Which one do you give it to? You give it to the first one because they're all positive. The only reason they're positive is they—they they are. By the way, just in case you haven't exactly on, all the exactly same. the same qualities. Just in a this is the sequence. order in the different sequence. Hmm. So and so the ones that I seen the strengths in the first one. Because it's quite good to be critical and mm. to be stubborn in business, but if you start with stubborn and critical, um, then you see that as being a, you see that as being a negative. So perfect information, there's no such thing anyway, because it's always how it's construed,
1: isn't it? Yeah, and, and, and it's I mean the whole idea that we can ha- store the amount of information involved is simply ludicrous. This is one of the things I enjoy doing with, with when I used to teach classes. Uh, is to take the example of uh, how do you decide what you go to, what, what you go buy when you go inside a supermarket and let let 's say you walk inside a supermarket and you 're going to decide whether you buy or not or, or not buy one item of everything you find inside the supermarket and say and it so 's either zero or one of all the items inside a supermarket well how many items are there you 're making a choice of two choices. Raised to the power of, say, two thousand commodities. Now that's more. I don't. I won't actually try to work it out in my head. But that's probably more, more um, uh, different ways of combining those thousand products than there are suns in the known universe. Uh, so the scale of of the of the choice that faces. If you wanted to have perfect information. There's not even, not that your brain isn't big enough or that you can't make a computer big enough. The universe isn't big enough to store the information on all those alternatives. So by definition, the whole idea of perfect information is nonsense. And to start Mm. from that point and call it a simplifying assumption shows just how truly simple in the wrong sense of the word, the negative sense, neoclassical economists are. Well, it also ignores
0: advertising, doesn't it? And, and oh, the value—the yeah, value—the yeah. value, the value attached to something is very often the brand, and that brand is obviously uh, an artificial thing that has been created largely by uh, advertising. Although, you know, uh, classical economists will say no, advertising is an essential part of the uh, of the, the sequence because it provides that perfect information. But it doesn't, does it? I mean, advertising is all about uh, obfuscating <laughs> information so you feel better about something. Well, the, so, it, it,
1: uh, your marketing doesn't even play a role in neoclassical economics, economics this is the other crazy thing uh, mm. the, the, they make assumptions about how the real world operates that leave out large elements of the real world and one of them includes how, how tastes are formed and the, and I've actually have seen now uh, leading neoclassical economists uh, disparage the whole idea that advertising affects people's decision-making well frankly sometimes I wish they were right uh, mm. but you, you look at it and I'm sorry the ad campaigns do have an impact and uh, you know that's why More people than ever. Pay Pay enormous amounts of money to advertise in the Super Bowl because that's the only way you're going to get your product seen above the cacophony of everything else. It's lucky. one thing I find very funny in Thailand. There's a, a, a particular uh, TV series about a woman who um, is transported back in time about 350 years, I think it is, uh, to a time when the Portuguese were trying to conquer uh, Thailand and you're using very surreptitious means. And she then finds herself back in that time and is is doing what she can to bring, you know, both survive there and bring some knowledge to the future uh, back to when she's, she's living. Now, it was such a popular show that you can't turn your bloody head in this country without seeing her face on a billboard. Now, why do you see her face on a billboard? Because you recognise her face and you can't help but see the products. So this mm-hmm. is why you get paid enormous amounts of money for you know, celebrities to end up advertising stuff because it's their face which will get you to pay attention to the product and that way you get a scare of information Uh, but it's immediately it's a scare of identification and and, perfect information what a wank.
0: Yeah, no, it's the emotive response. I mean that's what advertisers are concerned about. You know, when you're filling in your your advertising brief, mm. it's yeah, how much does it cost? What's the product do? Mm. You know, mm. what are the what are the benefits? But the the main part of the, an advertising brief is what is the emotive response? What do we want people mm. to feel about? Well, how do we want them to feel? Do They want them mm. to feel warm, warm and cozy, or angry, mm. or uh, loving. You know, what's the what's the emotive response this is going to mm. uh, inject into people so that they feel that way about our brand? So yeah, that's a that's a long way off perfect information isn't it but what is interesting with advertising and this is what i want to talk about as well yeah. is, is a, asymmetric information so this mm-hmm. idea and we are seeing this increasingly that uh, you know the, the buyer of a good uh doesn't know as much as the the seller of a good but we are also moving into the th- another stage where now where the seller of the good knows more about the buyer uh, than <laughs> possibly the buyer knows about themselves but, but but let's look at first of all with that even before we get on to that just the idea that if you are selling something, you know what you're selling. You know all about it. So this is where we get into the uh, the lemon mm-hmm. principle, which was George yeah. Engelhoff in the 70s, where if you're selling a car, you know more about the car than the buyer does. You know all the bad things that you're not going to – you know, he knows if he's selling a lemon, in other words. Mm-hmm. So even if the car is perfect, the buyer will probably have experienced something before where he's been sold a lemon. So he'll assume that all – cars being sold secondhand have got something wrong with them so mm. he's not going to sell pay the top price for it even if it is perfect uh because he doesn't know what he doesn't know in other words mm. so there is that asymmetry of information as well so does that mean companies will never need to i mean it, it's interesting because it if you are a producer of a of a good and if you think well there's a very skeptical public out there then you're never going to produce top quality goods because people are always going to assume
1: it's not top quality. Or you you try to get a reputation for quality and this is, you know, reputation building is often a large part of brand building as well. Uh, And uh, one of my favourite examples of that was actually uh, Mercedes-Benz and of course Mercedes is no longer at the top of the pecking order of cars anymore but it certainly was pretty high back in uh, when Hurricane Sandy hit New York and of course we know that Sandy caused massive flooding particularly through New Jersey but also through much of New York and there was a to uh, a story in the New york times about a a uh a chauffeur, I think it was, may have been a taxi driver, I think he was a chauffeur, and he was despondent to come along one day and find that his, you know, after Sandy, his Mercedes-Benz was on the opposite side of the road, and he expected (laughs) to find it completely ruined on the inside, and it was because the seals were watertight, no water got in at all, and his car was fine. Everybody else with American cars had their interiors ruined by the floodwaters. So uh, a a, a firm can decide to build a reputation, uh, and that's, that that can be a, a positive about its uh, uh, perspective in the marketplace. Of course, at the other extreme, if you try to con people, well, let's let a let, little company call. Was it Vol- was it Volkswagen uh, yeah. that, that tried to con on its on its rating? I think of its diesel cars, its yeah. pollution levels, and it actually, you know, it had sense. The car was set up to sense when it was being tested and give good results, and then when it was being used on the road, well, that's this is the real world. Uh, now, how long will it take them to recover from that? It could be decades. Yeah, um, and they're still paying out for it. They're still yeah, paying out for yeah. it. I mean, there's the yeah,
0: there's firms of lawyers who are wanting to launch class actions, advertising on the radio, saying, "Hey, join this class action if you've had yeah. Volkswagen, uh, We'll get some money for you." So uh, even though you've not necessarily been impacted directly yourself, so um, what about on this? So I mentioned the other side of the asymmetry of information is, which is an interesting development, isn't it? Which is where we are now, where the the seller of a good actually knows more about you than perhaps you do, mm. uh, and um, so you you know we had, we we join loyalty programs. So they know about you and um and sometimes you know they'll charge according to what you can afford which is segmentation so you know mm. which has been around since the arc so airlines don't just split planes into first business and premium economy and economy uh, there might be 12 or so economy fares on the same flight the same seat might have a different fare attached to it on one flight to the next and it's determined by rules which are based on uh who can use the ticket and they will be targeted at people most likely to be able to to afford or buy that ticket and um, you know which is determined by which channels it's sold through is it sold through a bucket shop and that sort of thing uh, mm. is, it, uh, is it is it is uh, it a promotion in a magazine you know there's all these different ways of selling the same thing exactly the same thing for mm. a different price determined by who's buying it which is determined by how much they can afford So uh, as we have more information about people, there's more of an ability to do that. Uh, So this whole idea of of price being fixed on a graph uh, is changed even more, isn't it, the fundamental yeah, of economics? Like
1: an economist will often knock that and say that this is actually results in, in what they call the consumer surplus being grabbed by the producer instead. So consumer surplus uh, r- – robbed of their surplus. But in fact, a lot of this stuff also means that it's possible – it was possible – to hop on a plane and fly halfway across the, across the world – uh, for a couple of weeks wages because with that segmentation the, the firm is making a small amount out of you but it's, it's better to have a, an occupied seat than an empty one because of, that's another classic case where the marginal cost of the extra bum flying on the plane is pretty damn trivial uh, but mm. the the capital cost of, of, of designing the planes in the first place paying the construction costs, etc cetera, etc cetera, are huge so th- the more marginal dollars you can get in the better and your, your, your target is to get 100% capacity and that's what all those rules are about and ultimately that ends up rather than ripping the consumer off which is the perspective you get when you have this idea there's only a single product uh, it's all about price competition and marginal cost rises rather than ripping the consumer off it makes something into a mass market which would otherwise be something just for the extremely wealthy and the extremely wealthy don't notice it too much because they're extremely wealthy because they're extremely wealthy yeah <laughs> this, this is the thing i mean you know I, i've been actually, i gave it i gave two talks on economics yesterday we're going to put them up on uh, on youtube later on today one was in in poland talking about how economists have stuffed up the environment and the other was on microeconomics and how they've stuffed up understanding how firms actually behave and uh, and and this whole idea of, of rising marginal cost which is sheer nonsense uh uh, is, is what's driven the development of a model which completely obscures the real world rather than explaining it it obscures it and then along comes Joe Stiglitz and brings us the idea of asymmetric information to try to improve how they've obscured what we would have understood without their help on the first place.
0: Right. So explain more about his, his, his approach then Stigler's approach. Uh, by the way those videos I'm sure you put them up last week didn't you as I remember.
1: Uh, the- no, this is easy. I finished, I shot them last no, no, night. No, got did, a, no, got no, you did,
0: did a week ago. did a week ago,
1: Steve. Oh, I did, did a week ago. Go. That's right. Yeah, yes, yeah. of course. Oh, my God. Hey, what's this? It's this product diversification we're into. <laughs> yes, you're right. A week ago. <laughs> so mm, what's... <laughs> thank you. Oh, I've blown one of our secrets. <laughs> my God, we've, blo- we've We've screwed the asymmetric this is not- People now realize we record two every week and put them out one week apart. Oh, my Guardian God, we've hug- blown our marketing. whole game away now. So, d- oh, damn. Okay, so okay. talk I can see our sales will plunge next week. So talk about Joe approach
0: to his, his thinking on asymmetry then.
1: Well, it's fundamentally, he's, uh, he's trying to explain how... Um you can have have, uh, one side making a gain at the other's expense Mm. uh, because information asymmetry applies. So in that case, you say the seller selling a car knows more about the car they're selling than the person who's buying it. Uh, So that then means the seller can make an advantage, but then the buyer looking at it thinks, well, I expect to be conned by the seller, so that drives the market price down. And often what I find annoying uh, is that this explanation is dragged into talking about explaining where the financial crisis comes from. And the argument there, when when this asymmetric information idea is applied, is that the people who are borrowing the money during the subprime boom knew more about their financial situation than the poor, uninformed, multinational corporations that were lending them the money. And therefore, the, the ma and pa kettle ripped off Bank of America because the all knew they really couldn't afford that loan, and our pure old bank of America got conned with a, with a bad loan. Well, give me a effin' break! Um, because it, 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 isn't, it isn't asymmetric information that's the problem there. It's shared beliefs about the future which are wrong, and not managing risk, both-
0: which is you know, because, which is the well, fundamental yeah, yeah. aspect of banking, isn't it? You uh, the yeah, well,
1: yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, but both the, both the banks and Maren Parkettle both believe that prices are going to rise forever. So it wasn't the fact they had an asymmetric, asymmetry of information, it's that they had symmetry of beliefs. And this was a point that Minsky made quite brilliantly in his writings before the financial crisis occurred, that what actually drove financial bubbles wasn't this asymmetric information, which was Joe Stiglitz's explanation. It was shared uh, euphoric explanation ex- expectations about the future which then led you both sides of the of the uh, uh the, the borrowing equation to commit to more debt than they would be if they didn't have these uh, euphoric expectations right. and that's what leads to breakdown Shared mentality
0: but, the, you know, the yeah. where head mentality is is fine so long as everyone keeps believing in head mentality. It's only people like you getting well, get in no the way, Steve. And the and, yeah, there's Cliff. Nah, were, that's my fault. Yeah, yeah, I knew it. Yeah. I knew it I if you're not part of the head, around. you're not part of the head. If you're with the herd, we all yeah, just yeah. keep moving forwards. That's it. But then, mm. on this asymmetry, mm. I find this interesting, just going back to that airline example, because I think yeah, supermarkets mm. are doing it now as well. So I, I do my grocery shop online, and I know that the deals that are in stores aren't available online, but I still shop online for the convenience of it. But they also online will target some, some offers to me based on past purchases. Uh, and, mm. uh, I'm sure if I was a bigger shopper or I bought more luxury and, and goods, then I wouldn't be getting those offers and I wouldn't care because I'm rich. Uh, so they're doing the same thing. So are they taking bigger margins from those people who can afford it, just like the airlines, uh, selling seats at different prices? The answer is probably yes. Uh, mm. but we're going to see more of that, more segmentation, I think, happening in, in all sorts of, all sorts of sectors, and of course, companies increasingly know more about us. You know, you go go to Google, go to how uh, your ad profiles. You can see uh, what information if you go into your uh, into your Google account, you can see what they know about you in terms of what they think you're interested in, which is determining what ads are getting served to you, and that is based on oh, everything that Google knows about you. Google knows. Uh, what I've watched on TV because I've got a Google TV. They know places I've been because I use Google Maps. They know which websites I've been to. They know which online ads I respond to. They know what's in my calendar. They know what I've bought because I use G-Pay. They store my photos. They know my exercise routine through Google Fit. Uh, They know, know, I, I guarantee they know more about me and what I'm doing than my wife does. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I won't go there at all. No, um, I've, I've never been there either. Yeah, I've actually found that I've got to check my passwords out, which is just the sort of thing I really enjoy having to do on a weekday. Um, but that that yeah, fact that uh, they,
0: that that fact that now uh, companies that are selling to us have more inform have more information, uh, so it, it's switched, hasn't it, from that situation where we had that lemon principle, where the buyer uh, might know more about the product than the uh, the, the, the seller more. might know more, more about the product, but than the buyer does uh now that to the situation where the seller actually also knows more about the the, the buyer themselves so the, is that a good thing or a bad thing is that a good thing or a bad thing for consumers but is it also you know does it what's the economic impact of that
1: yeah, I mean, I, I'm ambivalent about it because um, one thing, like you know, for example, I'm no fan of uh, Jeff Bezos, mm. uh, and, 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 and particularly with his work and, and his space activities and uh, and the way he treats his workforce. But Amazon's a bloody convenient way to shop, and. Um, and consequently I do again of online shopping most of that that I do is going to go through Amazon and then they will profile me and try to work out what I want to buy strangely enough, I find most of the ads are things that they've they advertised to me things I've just purchased which I yeah. find ridiculous we serving ads uh, that's
0: called yeah I know yeah. it's a complete waste yeah. isn't it but I guess the idea yeah. is that you haven't you haven't bought it yet so they so it's a it's a it's it's pretty successful for those people who haven't bought it it pushes you over
1: the edge mm. But, uh, but 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 in in fundamentally the the reason amazon has been successful it's reduced the cost of searching for consumers and re- reduced the cost of delivery but it's now 50% so, of all retail sales in the united states 50% yeah. 50% yeah yeah i mean that's not healthy is it well, again, this, this is the case, is a monopoly bad for the consumers or good? And again, from the neoclassical point of view, monopoly is always bad. But when you look at how monopolies actually come about, and this is certainly the case with Amazon, uh, it offers something that nobody else did and therefore takes over an enormous part of the market. And the costs the consumers face are therefore lower than they would face, even if they had a competitive market. And this, again, is where the fallacies of the mainstream come in. Because, because they, they say that you know, marginal cost rises, or the, the cost of delivering the last and keeps on on rising, uh, their picture is that a monopoly will charge uh, not where demand equals supply, but where what they call marginal revenue equals marginal cost, and they will therefore produce uh, – a monopoly will supply a smaller quantity at a higher price, and therefore a the monopoly is necessarily bad. When you look at the real world, where, where marginal cost is falling, where economies of, 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 of scale Favor large over small, it can often be that a monopoly will end up producing, selling a larger volume at a lower cost for the consumer. So the consumer Mm. comes out ahead with a monopoly. And when you actually, going back to. Which is certainly the case with companies like Amazon. They build these big
0: warehouses, have automation that's there, and the only way they can make more money is by basically pushing more more through their system.
1: Yeah, and and therefore what you get is lower margins coming out of that and actually the monopoly, uh, the, the only problem is where the monopoly feels unconstrained and, and this is uh, actually some very good work that was done by an old friend of mine, Paul Ormerod, uh, in, this, in the uh, UK some years ago. Uh, uh, I wish I could have worked more with Paul. I haven't; the circumstances just circumstances has got in the way. But one thing Paul did was a multi-agent model of a competitive market in—I uh, think it was in telephony—and he was actually doing it for BT uh, to make a case that uh, there was no point in saying we should have more uh, radio, so more uh, uh, television phone suppliers in the UK because competition basically meant more than one. Uh, it was a very nice little evolutionary model, and what you had was there was a he, he defined price on a scale from zero to one and quality on a scale from zero to one, and then any new entrant could choose any particular position on the zero to one axis to come in. And with the numerous simulations, it turned out that the, the market drove you towards the lowest cost and the highest quality, uh, so long as there were more than two. Or more than one, I think. Uh, it, so there was no relationship between how many competitors there were and what the quality and price outcome was for the consumers in the long term. So it's just the threat of competition is enough to mean that the margins are kept low. Now with Amazon, I mean, they really, I mean, is, is there any other retailer that has the market reach they, anything like the market reach they've Look- got? Well, they got more than 50% in the United States, so obviously not. Yeah, yeah. But still, uh, the people go to Amazon because they try to find something somewhere else. It's just that much harder much more expensive yeah. so the economies of scale work out in the favor of the consumer and for this reason you get concentrations of power in in capitalism where where the neoclassicals say the best situation is dispersal now um in in fact you, you these 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 concentrations of power may be better for the consumer in terms of quality and price than the dispersal that the neoclassicals fantasize about sometimes but uh, yeah so
0: but it is all being driven by this information isn't it so the information is the is the key now which which may be good if it means that you're getting targeted with with things that you want, maybe bad. I mean, you can argue that, you know, advertising sells you stuff that you don't want, but, you know, we've got to assume that we're all grown-ups and we can actually make a decision on these things unless the advertising is very powerful. And then you've got, uh, so going back to the lemon effect, you mm. know, where that, you know, is the car, is this guy uh, selling me a lemon or not? Now we've got, uh, you wouldn't buy a car from a used car dealer without going online to see what the reviews are. Of that uh, of that car dealer, if they've got lots of bad reviews online, they wouldn't stay in business for very long these days. And the so actually, information, yeah, yeah, information is helping them.
1: Yeah, it works. Bo- it works both ways. I mean, I put a couple of bad reviews in on some products on occasions for good reason, and uh, and and it it is an empowering thing. There is feedback that goes both ways. So it it's it's often you know, rather than the neoclassical vision that a large corporation automatically has the capacity to exploit. Uh, all its potential consumers, Uh, given the information structure we've got these days, uh, where Amazon might not be the one that stores information on what people think of Amazon, um, then then that's where you do have competitors in that sense. It's not that somebody else can supply the goods, but somebody else supplies the ratings of the company supplying the goods. That gives you an offset, a power offset that you simply can't even consider in this neoclassical vision of perfect competition. And does it mean we are getting better quality products at the end of the day as well because of this ability
0: to review? So the lemon uh, fear doesn't apply these days, perhaps because there aren't quite so many lemons. Because if you produce something that's bad, yeah, uh, people are going to write about it, you know. So, so, you, and we do research stuff. So maybe that, uh, uh, you know, the the power of information is improving the the quality of goods. The other thing that's in, is interesting as well is this move to subscriptions now, isn't it? So you know, not buying stuff. But subscribing, there's a little bit off topic, but I think it's an interesting point to end with, perhaps. Mm. The moment you start, if you were to subscribe to a car or anything, you know, subscribe to a coffee machine or to a TV set, uh, if you're told if it breaks, we'll replace it. Then, the uh, you know, you pay so much per month, which people are happy with because they perhaps can't afford the upfront cost. They, uh, but also happy about the fact that if it breaks, they don't have to suddenly find the money to buy a new one. Mm. The incentive then on the manufacturer is to produce something that has complete longevity because if it breaks, that's a cost to them.
1: Yeah, I know that's what, that. Maybe we're coming our way with cars with uh, with you know if if yeah. if full self drive ever gets properly developed, uh, and then you can you you basically. I mean, the hassle with a car is you've got to park it. Um, now, if you have a, a, a full self drive fleet of taxis. Um, then you just simply call the service of transportation to get you from where you are to where you want to be and there's no need to worry about parking. So suddenly a a very large... Uh, inefficiency in our transport system is eliminated uh, by an information service. Yeah, all right. And so by it, the technology that makes it possible. Yeah. Which is an interesting discussion which has got absolutely nothing to
0: do with what we've been talking about today, but I just don't know why I wanted to throw it in the end. I'm just excited at the prospect. Maybe we could, we could talk about that in a, in a future podcast, but we'll leave it there for now. Good to talk, Steve.
1: Okay, mate, bye. And
0: if you want an illustration of how we are facing a losing battle on this situation where the advertisers or the producers know more about us than we perhaps would like to know, I have just bought a scooper device for picking up apples from trees because it was recommended to me on Amazon and I've got no idea. I mean, uh, apples are falling in this season, but how did they know I've got apples uh, (laughs) or apple trees in my garden to try and recommend this to me? I find that a bit scary. They've got my address. Is there a database somewhere that's showing... uh, Is it through satellite imagery? How the hell do they know? Uh, that's scary stuff, isn't it? That's it for the Debunking Economics podcast for this week. I'm Phil Dobby, back again with Steve Keane next week. Thanks.
1: Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.